Constantinople has fallen, and all across Europe, ancient vampires known as Methuselah rise to claim vast territories as their own. This is the War of Princes, where the political maneuvering of old stand side by side with the armies of ghouls and canines clashing in the night. But vampires are not the only ones making this land their own. In the wild places, the Guru have their cairns. Mages have ancient sites of power for magic. The Shadow Inquisition has risen to eradicate the enemies of God. And the enigmatic Fae have their own plans. Welcome to the Dark Ages. Greetings, dear listeners, and welcome to episode 14 of season 2 of the World of Dark Ages podcast, where things are going to get personal. My name is Jacob. And I'm Peter. So, now that it's summer, do you have any big plans? Uh, not until the beginning of uh, of August, when uh, me and uh, the girlfriend and podcast Doggo are going to the island of Gotland for the medieval week. Oh, I want to so, go there at one point. Yeah. It looks so cool. Yes, it is. It is very cool and it is very fun and it is also very chaotic uh, depending on <laughs> when and where you go, but in a fun way. Yeah, well, one day, one day. Um, hopefully, uh, I'll be going to Venice and see the Giovanni. I was supposed to go in 2020, that got cancelled. I was supposed to go in 2021, that got cancelled. And now there's no more Corona, but now there's talk of a pilot strike. But anyway, mm. one thing that we're going to do is take a little break over the summer. We haven't figured out exactly what uh, is going to happen. Maybe we'll record some side quests to take the place of regular episodes, but we'll give more information once we've uh, we've established it. Anyway, today's book is Rite of Princes, written by Stephen Michael de Pisa, Miranda Callis, and Jakob Klunder. Hey, I know Matthew- that guy! <laughs> <laughs> developed by Matthew McFarland. Yes, uh, just to address the elephant in the room, I was one of the writers on this book. This was my first professional writing gig, and, well, it shows. Uh, anyway, Peter, I'll let you take uh, the lead on the last two chapters, because those were the ones that I was involved in, so uh, I'll, I'll, I'll let you do the uh, do the talking there, and I'll just yes, supply, yes. I'll, I'll supply my excuses. <laughs> but as always, we, we start with the art, specifically the cover, and I really like it. It is part of a larger piece. Um, the other half is the cover of the Spoils of War book that uh, we are going to get to later, and when we do get to that, we'll talk about the, the greater whole and um, and how it fits. But for now, let's just take a look at this. Um, we've got a pretty period-looking castle in the background. We've got good mail armor, good shields and helmets. I mean, sure, the main guy should probably have worn a helmet and his heater shield lacks a geese strap, but it's really minor. Uh, I love that most of the soldiers here have spears, and even the, the pole arm in the foreground doesn't look too fantasy. There's also a real sense of defense here with the castle in the background and the prepared stakes, so I think this is one of my favorite covers, maybe even my most favorite cover uh, so far. Yeah, it, it looks cool. Like it, it's a very common thing, the, the old Hollywood trope of we we have an important guy, so he can't wear a helmet because then <laughs> no one can recognize him. Which is why you had her- heraldry uh, back in this time, or even the the really cool and weird uh, helmet crests that could be pretty much everything, but just to show that yeah, that's the the guy with all of all of the ornaments on his helmet. He's the one in charge. Uh, but yeah, he really should have worn a helmet. Uh, but I, I agree with all of your comments. Uh, he has some rather fancy uh, metallic uh, leg armor, and those weren't really around at this time. And like, if you have any kind of 
of um, fully metal, uh, not chainmail armor, then you would probably focus that on like your your chest because that's where all of your organs are. Uh, even if you are a vampire, which I assume this guy is, because that's where your heart is. And yeah. stakey, stakey, pokey, pokey, that's not a good thing. Uh, but yeah, it's it's still a really cool picture. Yeah, and he's he's not wearing gauntlets. He's just wearing leather gloves, which is quite appropriate for the time. Mm. So that's, that's at least something. So it's a generally good piece. As for the interior art, it continues the good start from the cover. There are several excellent pieces here, both well-made, very thematic to the text, and with a lot of good historical accuracy. We get a little too much plate from time to time, but otherwise the weapons and armor are very, very good. Uh, one picture I want to mention is on page 38 where we seem to have some sort of parchment golem inside a library. And that idea in itself, I think, is kind of cool because it is yeah, tying yeah. into mages. Yeah. Uh, the fact that you have both scrolls and books piled together, this is very accurate because most libraries tended to have at least as many scrolls as books because if you had older texts, they would op uh, often be on rolled-up scrolls rather than in, in books. And the lectern is also correct since people yeah. this time... They usually stood up and read rather than sat down. However, the book, the books, they lack, lack clasps to keep them closed because since parchment is used instead of paper, books of this time tended to be forced open by the stiff and thick parchment. So in order uh, to make them take up as little space as possible, they, you put clasps on them so that you can force them closed and then yeah, on, on the really like big, yeah, on the really thick books you did, uh, and 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 for the for the very same reason or for a similar reason is why you had lec lecterns because you kind of needed support for the the covers of the book, otherwise they could just uh, crack. So so you couldn't. It, it's like when people. Uh, break the spines of books and and the people who like books a lot are kind of like oh don't do that it's the same with old books uh, and often even worse since like you said parchment is basically leather and leather can get stiff yeah. um, a, a fun side fact about scrolls is that there are examples of where where there was a scroll and then it's been cut up to yeah. to be made into a book uh, which I guess could sometimes ruin the flow and and um, especially if you want all the pages to be of a fairly similar size, then it's it's probably going to look weird. Uh, like, I imagine it in some ways, I don't know if anyone remembers, but when you scanned documents back in the time when scanners were fairly new, at least to, uh, as a private person, and, and you would get like the, the formatting wrong, so you would yeah. have on <laughs> like half the page... In, in one image and then the next page was or the next image was one and a half page of the next so uh, so yeah but it's uh, I really like the picture as well the the um, parchment golem or scroll golem or whatever you want to call it looks really cool yeah and I think the character pictures from the last chapter they are in my opinion some of the best in any Dark Ages book but I think we can talk a little bit more about them when we get to the last chapter because they are very tied into that chapter yeah but do you think there are enough hats here well, there are a few hats here and there. Uh, there is uh, not not really a hat, but on page forty one we have uh, one one of the best like peasant people I've seen in a long oh, time yes. because yes, that's he's really actually good. wearing a hood. He's wearing something that could easily be a hose, uh, and then he he does have kind of uh, these kind of fantasy ish boots. 
Uh, but they're, they're still good enough. But what I really like is that uh, his uh, his clothes have been mended, uh, yeah. which which you would do like even if you were really really poor, almost especially if you were really poor, you would make sure to mend your clothes uh, because that might be the only ones you had. Uh, there there are also later on on page uh, forty five you have um, a bunch of. Um, I don't know if they're supposed to be crusaders or armored pilgrims or anything, but one of them is is wearing a, a nice wide-brimmed hat with a uh, one of the kind of uh, uh, clamshell uh, pilgrim badges on his hat, mm. which if he was on a pilgrimage, he would be. Uh, there's another one who's just wearing a, a wide-brimmed hat, and, and there's a few hoods. Uh, but what I really like is that a lot of people have, have really nice mustaches, uh, yeah. And and because at the around this time, uh, the the fashion was quite often that, uh, especially among uh, knights, that you were you you were supposed to have a fancy mustache. Uh, it might have something to do with the fact that the kind of armor you were wearing, which is nicely depicted in this picture, by the way, uh, is a very close fitting uh, chainmail hood, uh, yeah. and if you have a beard, uh, like. Everyone who has have, has hair uh, and has at times worn uh, chainmail knows that that chainmail links and any kind of body hair is not a good combination. So if you oh, have no. a beard, uh, that's that's gonna hurt if it gets caught in your chainmail uh, hoodie. Uh, but the mustaches and and we're talking like the the really big ones sticking out of the sides, they won't get caught in your chainmail, so you can still have fancy facial hair. Even if you don't, uh, or even if you do have a, a chainmail hood on, um, and there's even a uh, a grave effigy of, or at least we think it is of William Marshall, who is no. said to be uh, the best knight of of all time, or something like that, by by a chronicler, uh, and he has one of these fancy mustaches. Uh, his his nose have been more or less worn off uh, on on the effigy, but you can still see that he actually had. Uh, just the mustache, um, and he on on the effigy he's also wearing a, a chainmail hood, so it makes sense. Um, but but yeah, all, overall I I agree with them. Uh, that it's some really cool pictures. There are some. Uh, there's there's one. Let me see if I can find the page number uh, where it basically looks uh it's a character that looks like wednesday adams more or less ah, page 76 yes yeah and there's uh yeah exactly it's it's <laughs> it's wednesday adams with, with that was a my, creepy dog. the first time i got this book uh i obviously went to the chapter that i'd written to look at the art that i'd inspired <laughs> and my first comment was what the hell is Wednesday Adams doing in my book? Because yeah, you're well, absolutely you, right. <laughs> yeah, you, well, you could have you could have worse visitors. Uh, <laughs> there's there's also one that if if I'm going to criticize something, um, and that is uh, it's a picture I can't find it now, but it's a picture of of people in a bathhouse slash brothel, and oh, yeah. and the men are wearing these kind of like. Almost diaper-like uh, Conan the Barbarian-esque underwear, where where you see it, it just looks like they've taken a, a long piece of cloth and kind of like wrapped it around your your groin uh, and then tied it to to function as as some kind of underwear. And the thing was that 
we we had proper underwear in this time. We we had it even previously. Like there there were some things akin to um, to bikinis back in the Roman days, even. So mm. so this kind of weird, just like wrap a piece of cloth or a towel around your midsection as underwear, just doesn't make any sense. Uh, and and it's gonna be bulky. It's gonna show. Like try stuffing a a towel down your pants and see how that looks. It's not gonna look good. Uh, so I like just just give them the 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 simple brace. They they're really easy to draw because they look like basically uh, boxer shorts, uh, and and they look a lot cooler than the the kind of diaperish uh, things that that these people are wearing. Um, so that's that's about the only like real criticism I have that I can think of now. Uh, there are some inter- interesting tentacles showing up in one picture, and I, I haven't <laughs> I haven't really been able to figure out why. It looks cool, but they don't really uh, tie into any of the descriptions. Um, <laughs> there, there's also a really cool guy. That, like the very first um, chapter divider picture is uh, is a really good picture of say a a 14th or uh, early 15th century knight. The problem is he's supposed to be in the the, uh, the 13th century. Yeah. Um, but he's he's wearing like a, a chainmail hood and a cool um, has some really nice um, hourglass gauntlets uh, and then he has some fancy heraldry uh, and I think we talked about her- heraldry a bit before but the thing was um, like the the early heraldry was quite simple because it's it's supposed to show like okay this is my emblem that I have on my shield so that my my friends don't attack me on the battlefield. Uh, and it's just going to be something simple because I I don't know I have a red rooster on my farm or or in my in my castle so I'm just gonna paint a red rooster on it uh, or just a, a a red stripe on a white background for example mm. uh, so the early heraldry which in a way is the cool ones because if you're an early noble family that has been around around for a longer time it means you're fancier. So the, the, the more simpler heraldry is often the oldest one. Uh, but what happened later on was that you combined it. So if, if on my mother's side I have like, yeah, just a, a red stripe on a, a white background. But on my father's side I have, uh, say, a golden sun. You could, um, you could half uh, the, the uh, coat of arms. So you would have half of it showing the, the golden sun and the other one would be the red stripe. And then if my children marry someone, you could quarter it. So you have um, like more and more uh, just just adding on to it. And, and there are some really cool examples from uh, the 1700s and, and onwards where you have like this almost inbred German nobility that have like literally dozens, if not even hundreds of like very tiny squares, each showing a section of, of a previous generation's coat of arms uh, and it, it just gets messy for and for for the painters who has to paint them and I imagine for the heralds who has to be able to identify it and say that 
that's that's uh, is that the duke of this and that or no it's it's his nephew okay yeah because it's the the third quarter from the top left is slightly different yeah okay so it's the nephew uh, so uh, but that's just a small comment on the on the fancy heraldry that the the knight is wearing that it probably wouldn't be as fancy now but overall it's it's still a cool picture uh, and he also has the fancy mustache and for our american listeners if you want to see sort of this quartering and weird heraldry look up uh, the state flag of maryland that has some yeah. interesting heraldry going yeah. on uh, one thing uh, that's i think is interesting when you talk about the um, the bathhouses from the sources that we have of the time it seems that it was actually uh, not uncommon for people to go naked in the bathhouse because they did not have the same approach to nudity as mm. we did so it 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 wasn't I mean, obviously, a lot of, of women and some men preferred to go to the bathhouse at a time where there was less chance of them being seen naked. But it wasn't like, oh, my God, someone is naked in the bathhouse. It was OK. You could you could sort of that was a place where you could get away with it because it was understood that you needed to get naked to take a bath. And from time to time, there were men remarking that if you wanted to get a good look at a, a woman, you found attractive find out when she went to the bathhouse yeah and then uh, just the picture that you mentioned on page 45 with um, the pilgrims and and the hats nice hats when i was looking at it right now i realized something that i didn't when i was uh, taking notes and that is the cart in the background and it's only because i've recently seen a video by jason kingsley where he presents ah. his new medieval cart and he says and look it has spokes unlike all of the carts in Hollywood uh, picture or, and, and yeah. Hollywood-inspired pictures where the, you have solid wheels. No, no, this one has spokes. So just a, a random thing that popped into my head. But basically, if, if you want to see what a medieval cart looked like and how it could be used, look up Jason Kingsley or what's it called? Modern History TV on YouTube. He has some cool videos and one about a, a medieval cart. Yeah, yeah. So... We start with an intro story, and once again, I find myself having trouble really getting into an intro story. It it does seem to tie in okay with the focus of the book, which is building up uh, and defending a domain. But honestly, I don't have much to say about it because it, it didn't really grip me. Yeah, I, I agree. It's um, it, it's not it's far from the worst. I would say that it, it's uh, mm. they they do have some some interesting. Um, depictions like for example it they they have a staked uh it it's about a a coterie of of i assume slightly younger vampires and they have uh, captured a a more powerful vampire uh, and staked him um and they what, what i like or one uh, one detail that i like is that they show how just how many uh, mortals and vampire it needs to uh, hold down a vampire as you uh, remove the stake because yeah, that if was would, a cool scene. Yeah, if if he if he would uh, go into a frenzy, then he'd probably kick all of their asses because he's a lot older than than they are. Um, but at the same time, there's there's one slight detail or or two. Uh, one in the text and one in the, in the picture depicting uh, the action. And in one, in, they mentioned that he's naked, which means that someone has stolen his underpants. And I'm just wondering, <laughs> what, why the hell would you, uh, would you steal someone's underpants? I don't know if it's like a misconception that people didn't wear underwear back in the days, but at least men did. Um, women 
did at times, um, especially during that period of the month, uh, wear underwear. I, I know that there are examples when they were just basically wearing a, a do you call it a slip or just like a, a smaller under uh, dress yeah. under your your um, tunic. Uh, so so like for some reason they stole his underpants. Uh, also, if you look at the picture on page seven, which depicts uh, there are one, two, three, four, five uh, people holding down his vampire, uh, and one of them is going to remove the stake. Uh, look at where the stake is, because they've staked him above his nipple, and <laughs> I'm not the best at at biology and anatomy, but I know that if you stake someone above the nipple, you're not going to be anywhere near the heart. Uh, uh. So bit of a miss yeah yeah quite literally <laughs> but and and it just looks weird uh, so uh, but yeah overall the story it it kind of goes through uh, or, or an entire campaign or at least a game where you start out with this young coterie and then a few years later they have managed to build up some success uh, so in in that matter it's kind of cool but it's it's not really exciting to me. No. So the intro is standard for these books. It gives a quick overview. It uh, also helpfully clarifies the concept of the domain background. I think that's how it's supposed to be pronounced. It's spelled Demesne, D-E-M-E-S-N-E, but I think that's supposed to be pronounced Domain. People who are, are better uh, scholars of, of uh, the language will have to correct me if I'm wrong. And these domain backgrounds are the backgrounds of Domain for Vampire, Chantry for Mages, etc. But yeah, it's a, a solid intro. I don't know if you have anything specific to add about this intro. No, no not really. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's nice that they've come up with like a, a group name for all of the different ones. So they don't have to say... Uh, domain chantry chapter house and hunting ground for for all of like every yeah. time they talk about it so so yeah it's it's good to just lump everything together and call it domain chapter one is the king's domain uh we start with a short look at the tiers of power and influence in the medieval world before an overview of villages and countryside the same for cities and then a section on women's power in the middle ages the first half of the chapter is brief but very good with lots of nice information that will help you bring your setting alive and a great deal of ideas to use as a player. I especially like the section on women and the intro to that is amazing. The intro says, being a woman in the 13th century is much the same as being a woman in any age. Women are a little oppressed, a little suppressed and quite a lot undervalued. I think that truly sums it up uh, what being a woman was at, at this time and in many other historical periods. I really like how it mentioned that among peasants, women do a lot of the same work as men and that in guilds, women can inherit their husband's position. And among nobles, it's actually more likely that a woman can read and write than a man can because they have time to learn how to read and write and will often work as scribes for their husbands. Whereas the, the men, they learn how to fight um, and maybe some law in order to hold court. So they don't have as much time to learn how to read and write. Mm. Uh, the section also does not shy away from pointing out all the hurdles that women face, especially in their legal standing, so that you really have an, an idea of um, of where a woman's position is and the options that they have and also don't have. Uh, there's also some paragraphs on trade and the rise of high-level trade that actually rarely involves currency, showing the advancement made in the field of commerce at this time, which I also really like because 
it's not just today that you can basically trade without coins. At this point, you could have these letters that were drawn up and which drew upon the recognition of your merchant family or your merchant house, or if you were a noble, then your noble name. And these were considered considered as good as gold. I will note, however, that when it says that the biggest business for the prosperous burghers is the cloth trade, this is only really true in Central and Western uh, Europe, as well as large areas of the South, uh, so France, England, Italy, Italy and the like. In Denmark, for example, cloth wasn't that big of a thing. Salt fish, cattle and horses were the premier trade goods in Denmark. And I imagine Sweden had something other than cloth as its main product as well. Uh, yeah, but I can't say straight away. We, we did have a bunch of lumber, lo lots of uh, salted fish as well. Um, later on, but that's that's way later, we had a lot of, of uh, uh, bar iron being sold. Uh, mm. I, I don't know really what what we were good at i would have to look that up um well i lumber is something that definitely comes to yeah. mind because of of the huge forests and mm. i know that that denmark did import some stone from uh, from sweden because obviously we didn't really have that much ourselves yeah yeah i can imagine that um but but yeah it's uh overall it's it's an interesting chapter and, and lots of um uh, of of good information, I I do like the fact that they, uh, like they show how important trade is, and um, it kind of um, shows how not not just money, but but being a a, a good businessman can affect politics, because um, up until around this time. Uh, all you needed to to be able to do to have a lot of power was basically to be a good fighter or a good leader and then you would just gather all your friends and go around and say give us stuff or we'll punch you and mm. that's basically the basis of, of feudalism uh, but now we have situations where we're like can a businessman can decide the fates almost literally of nations like we we have to remember like we, we just had the fourth crusades which was basically the crusaders uh, having to pay off their debt by not going to the holy land to do the holy war there but to loot uh, constantinople to pay off the debts they had to the venetian businessmen uh, yeah. so so it's like yeah it, it's very much a clash between the old and the new and and the kind of dumb muscle in the form of crusaders like yeah sure money what's that kind of thing we're we're just here for the glory and uh, and, <laughs> uh, and and the holiness but yeah but you owe us a lot of money how much holy shit much okay yeah wh what do you want us to do uh, please please don't take all our lands because that's all we have uh, mm. so the second half of the book looks at vampires mages and inquisitors and how they establish power bases it gives examples for each of the backgrounds that a group can pool to form an anchor for shared backgrounds. And I love these examples given. Mm. Um, it really gives you a lot of interesting ideas for just the kind of thing that this book is all about. And it also, it, it sort of shows you, okay, you don't automatically have to use a domain background for anchor. Here's some ideas on how you can use others and how you can tie that into your character. So there's a lot of, of gaming potential in these examples 
just as much as in the actual text. All the examples are sidebars, but in the actual text where they talk about it, that's sort of general. I think these examples are some that you could just, you know, tell your players, okay, take a look at some of these examples. See if any of them sparks any ideas for the group that you're creating. Yeah, I, I really like the whole idea of, of pooling backgrounds and showing that like using that to tie people together because in in a way and i don't know if if they did it on purpose because like it's the thing that they were going for of it just happens anyway but if if you think about it like power is usually usually pooled backgrounds like if if you have an important person like the king his power doesn't come from him necessarily personally having like 11 dots of resources but it's because he has vassals or he has allies and they together can pool a lot of of uh, resources together um, or backgrounds in if you want to do like a, a game mechanics out of it and it's the same like a village priest doesn't really have a bunch of power but as part of um, of a member of the church or him like an, an abbot leading a monastery, that creates power. And, and so uh, in, in, in a way, and it's in a way it's kind of a chick, chicken and an egg situation, of course, but, but in a way it, it shows that even in, in a medieval society, the individual, uh, is dependent on some sort of collective or being a part of something bigger because like on your own even if you yourself has just a bunch of say silver coin if if you don't have any friends if you don't have a, a place to store the silver coin uh, if if you don't uh, know where to go and spend that coin or invest it then you're probably going to end up in a ditch apparently not even wearing underwear um <laughs> so so i i like the, the the fact that they show the the collectiveness because if if you have all of those things then you can use it in a way that generates more income that generates more power that that makes other people want to be your ally or your retainer uh, or whatever it can be and as as a contrast to that like one of the most um, the the worst punishment that you could get from uh, for committing a crime was being banished from society and becoming an outlaw mm. because that means that you have no one but yourself to rely on and even if people don't actively go out and hunt and kill you just because they could without legal repercussions you're still basically on your own and you have to fend your for yourself and that sucks uh, so, so yeah, it's it's a very interesting system, and it, it in a way actually reflects how society uh, was and in some ways is um, even now. Like you, the guild, a single guild member um, doesn't really have that much influence and or status, but as as a member of that guild, he can wield both uh, influence and have status. Like look, look, he's a member of the of the wool merchants guilds and not of the like uh, dung collectors guild for example yeah and it really helps illustrate the time period which is obviously one of the things we want mm. from some of these books uh one of the things that they talk about are the communes that are being created which yeah. are just 
they are beginning to become a very, very big thing. They started out in Italy where people still remembered the old Roman um, ways of doing things where the people in Italy decided that they weren't going to be ruled by a bunch of nobles but it has really spread and you can uh, you can see how um, how powerful these communes become there was one in the uh, city of Leon which was in or oh, sorry which is in I think it's in, in France either in France or Belgium at uh, at this time it was in Flanders and there was a bishop there who was we, we're not 100% sure what he did but what we know of him he was uh, a bit of a bad guy and he must have done something very very bad because the people of the city specifically the the burghers that had joined together in a commune they chased him into the church and beat him to death and i think it was on easter day or something like that Oh. Because, because they were they were tired of what he was doing, and it all comes to a head with how powerful the communes are. At the very beginning of the 14th century, when the communes of Flanders band together and defeat an army of French knights at the Battle of the Golden Spurs, which yeah. gains its name because they captured so many golden spurs. Later, the French then came back and kicked their asses, but... It was still ordinary citizens that had joined together defeating knights. And that's I think that's something that often get, gets overlooked. And I like that this chapter really shines a light on the power wielded by merchants, by communes, by guilds. It's something yeah. that... It's, it's an area where I think a lot of, especially vampires, but also other supernaturals, they could really get their fingers in that because when you play with nobles then, yeah, you're playing for very high stakes, but it's a lot easier to get your fingers burned. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, and, and now I'm thinking from, from kind of like a, a setting point of view that uh, it's a lot easier to kind of recreate these communes on, on the basis of how the Romans did it if you have someone who was actually there when the Romans oh, yes. were doing it. <laughs> Uh, so, so you have you can have like a direct link, like yeah, I remember. Uh, th- this is how we did it back in like a thousand years ago. Um, but also, as as you mentioned, that the fact that that ordinary people, be them burghers or in some cases peasants, actually fought against professional uh, soldiers in the form of knights, and uh, and and actually won. And that shows, uh, and and this goes on for for centuries. That it shows that that since the people kept on doing it, it must have been in a way um, possible for them or that they knew that, okay, we're not just doing this as as a desperate uh, kind of uh, fuck you to the nobility, but we're doing this because we know that other people have fought uh, professional soldiers and succeeded. Uh, so we, we have at least a fair chance as well. And we have that... Um, in, especially in the in the 14th century when you have a bunch of, of peasants rebellions you have that later on especially in uh, what is now Germany where you have mm. uh, revolutions and and peasant revolts to the left and right and and some of them are quite successful uh, at least like beating an army then the problem is that well the king or whoever might have a second army mm-hmm. uh, so so hopefully, now we've managed to fight him to a standstill. Now we can negotiate something. 
Um, then, then later on, of course, in in places like Sweden, where you have a very strong uh, peasant class, um, you you have like th- this can go on back and forth for ages, and and like the peasantry was like everyone knew that that the peasants were a force to be reckoned with, and we have example of that, like. Every time a, a Swedish king has not, well, not every time, but quite often when a Swedish king has been dethroned by a Danish king, uh, he will go to the peasants and ask them for help to, to <laughs> regain his throne. And, and the most, or probably one of the most famous examples of that is Gustav Vasa, who was kind of like, he finally kicked up the Dane, kicked out, out the Danes uh, like permanently. Uh, Sweden and Denmark still fought a lot of wars, of course, but Sweden was never really conquered by Denmark after that. So, um, so yeah, like again, it shows that uh, the individual might, of course, be important, especially in the in the cases of of vampires and kings and bishops and stuff like that. Mm. But they're still dependent on on being a part of something larger uh, to be able to to succeed in their goals. So chapter two, Holman Hearth takes a deeper look at domains, including giving us pooling and anchor examples for the guru. One might wonder why the guru got their examples here, uh, but it's probably because they take a look at the more mystic connection between the land and the people. And obviously the uh, the werewolves have that very, very deep mystical spiritual connection it also gives us some examples of why vampires would form groups as they are the ones that are least likely to do it obviously when you're playing the game you want your vampires to get together in a kateri but the way vampires are explained there are a lot of good reasons why they might not do this so it's always nice to get some ideas as to why do vampires join together um, we also get some information about life in Guru Cairns, which is welcome, as Cairns are such a central thing for the Guru. Mm. There's a look at Holy Ground and other aspects of Inquisitor domains, and a short section on major sanctums. But what I think is really interesting about this chapter these are the sections on the domains of other supernatural beings, such as ghosts, fae, other shifters, and more, which I think really opens up for some interesting storytelling opportunities uh, for you to involve your characters in. Yeah, I I actually wasn't that interested and, and, and intrigued by those, but oh. please tell me more, because I, I seem to have for a, a very different, um, not opinion, but like um, um, thoughts about it. So please, it, please tell me more. It's probably because I, I always like involving other other things like uh, ghosts and, and fae and stuff like that. So the idea of mm. uh, the ghostly battlefield, like how could that interact with whatever you're playing that that was that was specifically the 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 ghosts on the battlefield was the one thing that that really made me go oh yeah that could be uh, that could be rather interesting so so that was so for me that was actually the most interesting thing about this chapter was the domains of other supernatural beings but Ah. you know personal tastes vary (laughs) yeah yeah of course no it's it's more like for me it it kind of felt like an afterthought is that oh shit we we need something for for ghosts and stuff like that as well uh but but yeah now that you mention it it's yeah of course having a, a ghostly battlefield is a cool thing regardless uh, especially like it could make a good concept album for a heavy metal band, uh, but, 
but yeah, yeah, I, I might have to reconsider my opinions on that because for, for me it felt very much like an afterthought. But um, on on the other um, on the four main ones, uh, I I really like those. Like first of all, like like you mentioned, uh, finding a reason for the coterie to to stick together and 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 even live together um and also just in general showing how important your your domain is um like we we have we have real world examples of that almost like the, the i can't remember which of the french louis king king louis who said it but the one who said l'etat c'est moi i am the state yeah uh so so in a way like Again, it shows how important uh, your uh, the place where you're from or the place that you you rule or at least hold dominion over is uh, that that you're all almost a synonym, like the person is a synonym to the place. Yeah, uh, and and that goes like we have if if you look at Shakespeare's place, there's you have people that are called things like Rochester and Warwick, uh, and those aren't names of people those are names of places and and if you really look at it it's the earl of rochester it's the earl of warwick and so on and so on uh, but no one really cares because most of them were probably called like henry or john anyway and yeah. so you can't you can't distinguish between them but rochester you know like oh it's the cathedral in rochester or, or it's the castle of warwick or it's the castle of edinburgh or whatever so so you can like tie a person's title to what he's what, what he holds dominion over um and and like if you know that if if i present myself as um peter peter of Uppsala, then and you know what holy shit Uppsala, they have a cathedral and they have a university and they have uh, whatever we have um, nice pubs and <laughs> and if if i'm the one controlling it then you know kind of how much power I bring to a negotiation table. Um, and and a lot of, like, like I mentioned as well, uh, a lot of famous characters are just known by, uh, the, by where they're from. Like Ivanhoe, for example, his first name is Wilfred. Yeah. No one calls him Wilfred, more or less. Um, and yeah. I think it would be a, a, a much sillier movie uh, if... if People run around and call him Wilfred. Uh, you also have Isaac of York again, tying someone to the place where he's from because that's important. Uh, yeah, and and there's always been, even after Christianity took over, there's always been this idea that the king is the land and the land is the king. Yes, you see yes. it very very clearly, especially in the Arthur mythologies with the yes. Fisher King. Yes, when, exactly. When I, I've written that in, in my notes as well. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. yeah, where and when when he finally gets healed by this is embarrassing i should ha i should know my author mythology better what's the name of the um galahad when galahad, galahad yeah galahad heals him yeah by finally asking the right question then the land is healed and yeah. and this is this isn't just a good story this is how people thought and of course the old pagan ideas of the king had to go out into the field and perform various acts up to and including sometimes having sex with an animal in order to bless the land. Wait, isn't that what the what the tourists do in England nowadays? Uh, probably. But, yeah. but, but yeah, the, the, 
I mean, these things have disappeared mm. with the advent of Christianity, but there is still this idea that that if you have a good king, then the land will also be good. A good king brings a good harvest, or a good duke yeah. brings a prosperous city. But if they're acting bad, then that affects the land. Because you have to remember that even in areas where Christianity has been the controlling religion for a thousand years or more, the native superstitions that arose from earlier religions, they are still there in full force. And you won't find priests out there trying to um, to eradicate those superstitions because half the time those priests are from the local area and also believe it. And the other half of the time, the priests know that if they, for example, prevent the peasants from taking the last few stalks of grain from the harvest and tying them together to create this little effigy of a man, if they prevent that, then the peasants are going to be revolting. So, Well, the peasants are always revolting. Now they're rebelling. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> one, one thing that I... But that, one thing that I didn't like, but that ties into my whole take on inquisitor so if you want my whole take on inquisitor just listen to our episode there but they they mention how you can desecrate holy ground but and there's this very powerful right for desecrating holy ground mm. and this annoys me a little bit because if you look at how holy ground was desecrated in the real world basically if blood was spilled in a church it would not be considered holy ground until it was reconsecrated by a priest using either the holy relic that's in that church or if let's say someone was murdered in the church he'd have to send away to the nearest cathedral for even more powerful relics to reconsecrate yeah. and while that happened the church did not count as a church which meant you couldn't get married in it you couldn't get yeah. baptized the the right i i don't know if you just misspoke but uh, the right is about deconsecration and not desecration oh yeah deconsecrating the, yeah. it's it's for removing the consecration mm. of an area and you in the mythology of our world you could do that by spilling blood especially killing on holy ground there is a really cool series of danish medieval murder mysteries where someone is murdered in a church and the priest in addition to being annoyed at or being horrified by someone being murdered is annoyed that because someone was murdered he now has to send word to the nearest city to get some more powerful relics <laughs> so that he can reconsecrate the church uh, but obviously in the in the sort of setting of the game inquisitor holy ground is something more powerful but i just like it to tie in more to our world beliefs so that was that was my only complaint here was that it should be easier to remove the consecration from holy ground yeah i i think uh, i i think they're trying to make a di difference between deconsecration and uh, uh, and desecration uh, oh, okay. in in the way that that deconsecration is kind of a a proper way to remove the holiness oh, okay. of uh, of of a place kind of like the the difference between uh burning a flag because you don't like what that flag represents or burning the flag because the flag is is old and you don't want to throw it away in the trash because that's uh, disrespectful uh, but but yeah, I still see a point, and and I think they could have made it a bit clearer. But I I do like the fact that they they kind of make a point of how important holy ground is, and um, that that you you don't want holy ground to fall into enemy's hands. No. So if you can deconsecrate it, it's better than it being desecrated, kind oh. of. In, 
in in the way like yeah i'd rather sink my ship than you uh, uh, capturing it for example mm, but okay. but yeah it's it's it, it is a bit confusing and uh the the right itself i i didn't even read it properly but uh, but but yeah they they do have some uh, they, they could have made it clearer. I, I completely agree with that. So chapter three is guarding the gates, and I'm going to turn it over to you, Peter. Yeah, so this is written by someone called Jakob Klunde. Uh, <laughs> wh- what do you have to say for your defense? Do you, do you want to, like, have you reflected anything on it? I was young. Or? I needed the money. Yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> no, uh, basically, go go through what's in, in the chapter, and uh, I will uh, I will add my, my own comments in, in various places. I obviously reread it for this, and... and <laughs> I, I cringed, but there were also times where I thought, hey, okay, that this this is actually not that bad, considering it was a time when I was not an experienced writer and I I didn't have as much access to research and didn't know as much as I do today. So obviously, if I was going to write that chapter today, it would be different. But th- I, yeah. still th- I still think I managed to put in some interesting stuff there. Yeah, well, yeah, it, it is like the... The, the things that I'm going to to uh, comment on the most uh, is just the, the kind of uh, a lot of things is, is like just um, what do you call it? Not not myths, but general misconceptions that I yeah. think a lot of people have. But but the chapter is um, is is basically um, about how how you do the the things that we talked on in the previous chapters, but in in a more uh, practical manner uh, and. Um, and, and uh, uh, also, kind of, of what you can actually do with it, uh, and there are um, uh, there are some rituals which uh, I I don't uh, really care for. It shows up next to Wednesday Adams, but but um, <laughs> like the, the the first thing that. Um, uh, it, it, it's a lot of game mechanics that, uh, at least in the beginning of the chapter, like how, how you pull your backgrounds and, and you yeah. can roll dice for for doing stuff. Uh, then we come into how you uh, how you defend your uh, your domain uh, mostly and and or your resource um, or other backgrounds. Uh, so you, we started with with guards and wards. Uh, there there are. Uh, some some interesting things like how do you get uh, guards, human mortal guards, to be loyal to uh, to an undead creature of the night? Uh, like you can't just kill everyone because that's going to be a problem. Um, there there is one thing that I I actually did like because it's it's one thing that I've um, I've noticed that that doesn't really make any sense in general uh, when it comes to werewolves because it's it's mentioned here and there in this book and in uh, other books as well that there are some places where you would really need uh, like if you're going there as a mortal you would want uh, at least a silvered knife uh, but and we talked about it knives are really bad weapons they're like the last resource knife but you actually mentioned silvered spears and mm. a spear is a really useful weapon uh, because it doesn't need as much metal and you can keep the, the angry thing that wants to kill you a bit further away. Uh, so so that was actually uh, a nice touch uh, in general. And I'm, I'm thinking like if you want to do a cool, um, like for an inquisitor, for example, uh, you could have a spear that has a silver tip at one end and the other end is just 
a sharpened uh, pole so you can uh, stabby stabby both werewolves and vampires oh uh, yeah but uh, you also talk uh, and and we, we go on through like how the different how the mages can recruit uh, uh, servants and, and guards and how the werewolf and how the church can do it uh, and and there are some some good examples uh, on on how you can do it um, but then like the, the first kind of little thing that I would just want to nitpick a bit uh, <laughs> it it when it comes to how you equip them uh, and we talk about uh, swords and metal shields and crossbows oh dear uh, metal shields oh yes yes like you you really well there were metal shields later on but they were usually quite small they were called bucklers there, there's also this kind of weird lantern shields. Uh, Google it because it's almost too hard to describe. It's it's a mostly a 16th century thing, uh, where it's kind of like a combination of an armored gauntlet, uh, a shield, uh, and then just loads of spiky bits. Uh, and you could also hang a lantern on it to to uh, blind your opponents if you fight in a dark alley at night. <laughs> yeah, it's a weird if, one. If anyone. Of, of our listeners can find uh, um, a believable example, like a trustworthy witness of someone who has seen this in use in a historical context. Please, please contact us because it, it's it, it's more something that that like uh, a crazy inventor would have made, created in uh, in a role playing game or like a, a steampunk uh, fantasy setting or something because it's it's just weird. Uh, but my point that I had somewhere deep in this <laughs> rant was that you really didn't have metal shields. Nope. Um, you also mentioned, uh, let me see here, you also mentioned uh, leather uh, leather armor, boiler reinforced leather. Uh, yeah, that, that wasn't really a thing. Uh, if you couldn't afford armor, you probably just put on more clothes because, like, yeah, yeah it's, he- it's not going to stop a, a helmet and a shield. Yeah, exactly, and and then you're then you're at least better off than if you were, wouldn't have been wearing as much clothes. Um, there are I don't know if that was uh, what if there was anything more about the weaponry. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You mentioned that that people might be more um, a, more trained or, or more familiar with wielding a battle axe uh, than than swords, and I'm assuming that the the idea is that uh, people using like ordinary woodsman's axes uh, would be used to uh, wielding battle axes, and yeah, I guess so. They're they're quite different. Uh, but again, I'm just gonna nitpick it because it's you, <laughs> and, uh, and and I know that you've grown since then. Yeah, and obviously we have to be honest because in the other books we've looked at things that are both really good and works with the history, but we've also been, you know, looking at these things don't fit and these are not historical. So it would be hypocritical for us not to go into the mistakes that I've made in the stuff that yeah. I've written. And and now actually when looking at it, I see that you also mentioned uh, giving kinfolk guards silver daggers. Just put a dagger on the end of, of a long stick and you have a spear instead. Yeah. Um, you, you do mention, and, and this uh, this is fun for completely different reasons, but you do mention that the papacy has outlawed the use of crossbows uh, against fellow Christians. Yeah. 
but I don't think anyone cared about that. It was the law. Whether or not it was followed is a completely different thing, yeah. but it was the law, or it was the papal proclamation, at least. But you're yeah, right. exactly. So, so but it's it's interesting that um, uh, that that you had this, but no one really cared about it. Uh, so, which which is kind of interesting because there's also always a, dis- a discrepancy between what you're supposed to do and what people actually are doing, and it mm. it's the same. We, we talked about women basically doing the same work as men. And yeah, especially like if if half of the village men folks are dead uh, due to some kind of, of illness or just because they there's a war going on or, or they might not just be just not be at home because there's a war going on. Of course, the women are going to step up and do the labor of the men because you can't just let the... Um, the crops die on the field because no, I'm a woman. I can't harvest it. No, of course you're you're going to do that, and no one's going to think that that's a problem because people are reliant on you. Like even the nobility are reliant on you bringing in that harvest yeah. to pay the taxes so that you as a nobleman can eat. So you you're not gonna care if the the grain has been harvested by a man or a woman because you you get hungry as well. Um, so uh, then, if or, or do you have any more comments on on the the guard section? Uh, uh, no, I... no, not not really. No. Nope. Mm. So yeah, I'm I'm just gonna look through this closely. But uh, yeah, no, but uh, but over overall, it's it's uh, again we we've, we've seen that that we we can grow. Um, uh, I I do like the fact that you go into uh, in the next section you talk about buildings and and how things were. Uh, houses were constructed. Uh, there, there are some things that uh, are uh, quite wrong, unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> you like don't you, say. <laughs> yeah, no, but um, and and one of the things I'm I'm actually gonna ask, like, where where did you come up with this? And and it's uh, the construction time of things because I, oh. I think it's a neat thing that you talk like how much resources do I need to build a hovel, uh, a proper house, a castle, and so on. Uh, but, like, the construction time is is really fast. Uh, because I oh, think... Yes. Let me see... Uh, yeah, let's take the construction time for a castle. Construction time is no less than a year and frequently five years or more. That's technically technically correct. Yeah, that's technically Frequently true. five <laughs> years or more. That's yeah. like... But, but that's kind of like saying that, that you know, the, the ocean is frequently uh, a bit moist or more. Because... Yeah. I mean, if you can finish a castle in five years, it's not going to be a big one. <laughs> yeah, or or a well-constructed one. And and you mentioned churches and monasteries uh, being constructed uh, in time from a single month to years. <laughs> Again, years plural. Oh, uh, I, I have no excuse here. I, I must have pulled that out of my ass or something. I have yeah. no idea where I got those construction times from. Yeah. Honestly, uh, because... Because that, and, that is and, wrong. Yeah, yeah, it is because we we mention it and and in a way this is this is I think it's a really cool thing because especially when it comes to churches, quite often the people who started to build those huge cathedrals, they knew that they weren't going to be around when uh, when those buildings were finished. Their children might not even be around. It it could literally take centuries to finish like the really fancy cathedrals. 
and quite often as well you would uh, you you would keep building and adding stuff like what what's the fashion of of towers uh, in this century of course we're going to add gothic towers to this more romanesque uh, church uh, we we're, we're going to add a bunch of gargoyle because that looks cool um the the cathedral in in Uppsala in I'm going to say the the 19th century uh, it was in in such bad disrepair that uh, they actually had to remove a bunch of, of uh, decorations that had been added centuries previously because they would fall down and they would risk hurting people. Uh, so they would rebuild it. Uh, but like it, 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 things like that, adding on to especially churches, it, it almost never stops because you want to, to uh, like if, if you're the king or, or a nobleman and you have a church, for example, or a castle for that matter, you want to add it to keep it up to date. Uh, to show off your wealth or to like uh, okay we've uh, we've discovered that round towers are better than square towers and I need to fortify my castle better so I'm gonna add a few round towers or rebuild one of the square ones to it and that takes time yeah and um, there are examples of cathedrals being consecrated and taken in you into use mm. while they were still building them, while they were still yes. working on them, because they'd finished enough that you could still use it as a church, but but they were still building on it and would be building on it for decades or even centuries after they'd started mm. using it. Yeah, uh, and and then just some some a few small details. Uh, you you mentioned that uh, windows. Uh, if any exists, are shuttered and either have glass panes or iron bars. I would say that both of those are probably fairly uh, uncommon. Um, yeah. There were windows because you needed you needed to get light in, um, but but window panes uh, were really expensive and they didn't come around for, uh, especially not for normal people. We're talking literally centuries. Yeah, uh, yeah. The the most likely thing, if you wanted to let in light but not let in cold, was you take uh, some kind of animal skin or bladder and scrape it until you could get some light through it, and then you would just put that up instead. Yes, or you could even take horns. Like if you oh, yeah. uh, if you think of, of like a cow's horns, for example, uh, that's more or less a cone. So if you cut that open and then you flatten it and then you hammer it or scrape it really really thin you could get uh, very small uh, panes of, mm. well, not glass, but something, and you could put it in. Uh, just just having wooden shutters or, or hang a blanket or something over would also work to, to keep uh, the, the cold out uh, if they needed to. Um, you, you mentioned, in a way, quite rightly, that, that wooden doors uh, didn't always have... Uh, have metal nails in them. Uh, th- they did later on uh, because it, it's quite cheap. You don't need a lot of metal, and and it's quite easy to uh, for any kind of blacksmith to make a nail. But if you uh, and and in the book it's mentioned that that the planks are tied together. Um, they probably weren't. Uh, so instead of of using a metal spike, you could just use a wooden one and just use a yeah. peg uh, instead. Uh, so, so again, we, I'm I'm nitpicking, but you you wanted me to do this, so, so I'm exactly. gonna do it. Exactly, I I want people uh, to see that that you know I I made mistakes as well, and mm. I probably continue to do so. <laughs> Just <laughs> yeah. less of them, hopefully. 
Yeah, you 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 do mention uh, that uh, locks weren't really a thing, and and at least not the way we think of it, like the metal locks, and you have no. a, uh, dead bolts were uh, quite often a thing, and or just a a simple kind of latch. Uh, I I saw I can't remember I I tried uh, googling it and and trying to find it, but I saw. Um, it was a recreation of a door, and I can't remember if it was from the medieval times or if it was like from the ancient Greece or something. But it was, it was a, re- uh, a re- reconstruction or a recreation of um, a, a fairly ingenious uh, lock that was basically dependent on that uh, you you had a a sliding latch on the inside of the door. Uh, and that was tied to a string, uh, and then you had a hole in the door of a certain shape, and and then you oh, would yeah. use um, you you would use basically like a key, or you needed the right plug uh, with the right shape that you could stick into that hole and catch the string that was tied to the latch, uh, and and pull that so you could open the door from the outside. Uh, and then when you close the door, you would use the, the wooden thingy to, to slide the door back in. Uh, and, and of course, that's not a very safe way. But like if, if you're a burglar and you're going to go into a house, uh, you, you don't have the time to stand whittling on a stick to try to get the right shape and, and length of that stick that you needed. It's really hard to explain just using words. I, I apologize. Wasn't um, that a, a wasn't it a Lindy Page video maybe? There because, it might have been. I because have I to, remember that yeah. as well. So I I think it might have been a Lindy Page video. Yeah. So we so it, it was it. it was quite an ingenious way on how to lock your door uh, in in a way that like yeah of course it's it's not foolproof it's it's far from it but it's it's still something that's going to make it more difficult for someone to get into your house when yeah. you're away. Yeah, the uh, most common so, the most common lock of this time, w- and w- this type of lock was mainly actually used for strong boxes. As like it was a padlock, and they were yeah. really really big. I've seen examples of medieval padlocks, and they were big enough that you could brain someone with them and yeah. kill them with one blow. Um, yeah, and they would rarely have been used on doors. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, it's like the the best way to protect something was like have guards have yeah. someone watch it uh, because like even if you're a thief you probably don't want to kill someone or having to start a fight to get it in uh, and just someone crying out thief burglar in the night that's gonna get like you basically your neighborhood watch or your neighbors and then they're gonna jump in uh, and uh, and and help fend off whoever it is yeah. uh so so yeah you you have um, uh, there there are some interesting solutions to it uh, I w- I will have to check to see if I can find that w- video uh, and we can post it uh, to this episode mm. um, the the next section we go into uh, unless you have more confessions no 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 go right ahead uh, yeah no then then we go into traps um, <laughs> and and traps are are quite interesting because. In a way, they're they're very useful because uh, you you can it's it's like landmines. You just put them somewhere, and then you don't have to worry about them until someone you like discovers them. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, the problem with with traps 
especially these kinds of traps and the materials you had is that uh, a lot of them are dependent on on tension uh, that's like you have rope that is is wound to work yeah. as a spring and then like for example you um, you mentioned uh, you, you call it the backbreaker where you have uh, basically two uh, two two pieces of wood that uh, swing out at chest and knee height when uh, the last one comes from the other side and so you get get caught in the middle. Uh, that that's really good uh, unless the the rope that ties everything together gets wet or dry and then it loses all elasticity and then you don't have any power in it. Exactly. Um, uh, and and of course, I, I don't think I've ever seen anything like this or heard about it actually being used. Uh, nope. So one hundred percent pure fantasy. I'm, yeah, I'm sad to say. Uh, and um, so so yeah, and there's a few like that, like like axes swinging down from uh, from above and hitting people in the head and things like that. Uh, again, it it would probably technically work, but the problem is that you would probably have to. Uh, check them every once in a while to see that they still uh, that they still work or that they haven't been destroyed or that it hasn't just been an unfortunate deer that has <laughs> walked into them. Yeah, um, it's it's basically it is so much easier, so much simpler to just post a freaking guard. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, and 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 again, of course, we always have the problem with with friendly fire. Uh, that uh, like if if you're going to um, like you 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 don't want your friends to fall into your trap basically nope. uh, so so you're still going to need to check them every once in a while to uh, to see that they haven't like that you haven't captured your friend in it <laughs> uh, and and that kind of creates another problem because if you tell all your friends where your traps are then one of them might slip up or or then sooner or later your enemies are also going to to know where your traps are yeah. uh, so from a, from a historical point of view um traps especially mechanical ones that are described are uh, rock falls and and a lot of other things uh, those uh, yeah again we get the swinging axe and and scything blades and and even a crossbow trap that's that's <laughs> kind of cool uh those weren't really a thing uh, as far as i can tell in in no. historical uh in a historical context but what you actually did have are obstacles yeah uh, like a moat even if it's not a water-filled moat if it's a moat and it's uneven ground. That means that it's more difficult for your enemies to to bring out siege ladders if you want, they want to climb climb over your city wall. Uh, it's more difficult to uh, to get across with a siege tower. Uh, you can you can uh, funnel people in the terrain to where your your archers and crossbowmen can can hit them more easily. You can uh, create places where they can't hide and so on and so on. Uh, so, so the natural thing, uh, na natural thing, the, the natural obstacles that you then improve upon uh, are are usually um, a more historical and b a lot probably a lot cheaper because you don't have to uh, maintain them in the same way. Yeah, um, exactly. Which, which in a way brings me to uh, to the next section, which is poisons. Uh, <laughs> 
and uh, I, I I haven't really uh, figured out like okay blade poisons uh, putting poisons on blades. I don't know if that ever was really a big thing. It's it hasn't been a common thing. You do mention rust and and feces on blades. Uh, I uh, I would say that you don't want a rusted blade. Uh, it it would probably or uh, or it most likely cause an infection, but you don't want a rusted blade because that's gonna affect the quality of your blade exactly, and it might yeah, you, it it, you it, want to maintain it your will weapons. probably dull the edge uh, or or it might even break the weapon. So so you, you wouldn't want that. Uh, feces on on weapons on the other hand was quite common. Uh, because it's uh, it's gonna get nasty, um, very much so. So, uh, but I, w- another thing when it comes to to natural poisons uh, that I would, I, again, I don't know if if anyone actually used it, but it, it's it could be, uh, especially for like say a cairn of uh, of werewolves who who might not want to disturb nature as much. Um, there's a plant that in Swedish is called Björnluka, and there's a similar one called uh, Jätteluka. Uh, in English, they're called one of them are called hogsweed or hogweed, um, and basically it's it's a huge uh, plant. It can grow to to several feet tall or even taller, uh, and it it's basically a weed. It can grow anywhere. Uh, according to the map that I looked on Wikipedia, it, the different kinds grow basically all over Europe, uh, and it has the the uh, the sap of it uh, basically causes burns. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think it's it, called Bjørneklo in Danish. Yeah, I think that's the same one, and it's yeah, uh, and and it's it's terrible and. And the really, really bad thing about it is that it's it's um, phototoxic, which means that if you get the sap on it, it reacts with sunlight. Mm. Uh, so if if I would uh, if I was uh, designing a cairn, I would have these huge patches of of hogsweed here and there. Uh, so if someone tries to sneak up into the night. They they might not even notice it until the day after when the sun starts to to shine on them. Uh, not necessarily not not a big problem for vampires, obviously, but um, <laughs> but but then you get these horrible, basically burn chemical burns. Uh, yeah. and and you can Google the pictures. They, they it's horrible and and they it sticks around for a long time and it's also uh, it, it also uh, discolors your skin. So you can literally see that okay, that that asshole was the one that crept through the um, through my my uh, brambles and my, uh, my my patches of weeds, uh, <laughs> and now they're paying the price for it. Uh, of of course, you can always walk around it, but again, it would be a, a good way to funnel people. Like yeah, you show that here is this huge patch of of nastiness, and here's a nice path. Which are you going to choose? Um, and and of course people like they would know that avoid this kind of uh, this, this kind of plant because unfortunately they would probably be familiar with it in some way or at least it would become a knowledge that okay those plants are are bad for you uh, yeah. so so there are ways uh, if if you want to use the things that historically were around but probably wasn't used uh, and and you could like uh, just um, Again, since it's a weed, it's very easy to to just plant somewhere and and let it grow. 
Um, if it's if it's somewhere where people walk all the time, it's probably going to be worn away. But if it's like if if you want to protect a sacred grove or something, um, I, I'd imagine that Fey would probably also uh, w- would want uh, or would have use for it because again, it's it's something natural. Um, so yeah. so yeah, it's uh, th- there are ways to 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 make traps. Um, so, uh, but yeah, that's that's my uh, on my my take on the poisons. Um, so uh, I don't know which which uh, we, yeah the next section is on on wards and magical guardians, uh, and yeah it's it's magic so it's it's kind of hard to <laughs> to say something historical about it. Uh, there is a cool the the uh, werewolf fetish the bells of warning where you have. Uh, basically you, you get a bunch of smaller bells that you hide out in in the, the place that you want to protect and then you have a big uh, a big one somewhere where people can hear it and and uh, if if someone uh, walks into the wrong, wrong place the uh, the big bell will start ringing and alerting everyone um there there are actually I'm trying to figure out where where um which cultural context but there are actually mentions of and and stories about like um magical objects warning about intruders yeah bells uh, that that ring when intruders are near there are a lot of legends and stories about that yeah and and like uh, um people in magical castles where like the the uh, pots and pans or or even like the furniture uh, wakes up and and starts like uh, shouting that someone has uh, uh, climb into the window or whatever so so uh yeah it's um i I was going to say that it's it's kind of realistic but of course it is and it's (laughs) magic uh but it's it's not uh completely made up it ties in with real world legends which is something i like doing with with the magic in this world yes uh and and there are other um examples of uh, um uh, of 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 course, mages are gonna have a bunch of wards and and spells protecting their stuff. Uh, you uh, there are uh, talks about uh, rights for for the inquisitors and stuff like that. Of course, the Tremere are going to have um, uh, are are going to have some kind of of uh, wards uh, protecting their places as well. Uh, and and. Uh, um, uh, yeah, there are mention of, of more supernatural guards like the Cappadocians using uh, uh, corpses and ghosts to protect them. And, and of course, the, uh, the Tsimichi are going to have uh, coldonic sorcery and uh, revenants uh, aplenty to, to just go around and, and yeah. guard their places. Um, but, but yeah, it's... Um, uh, there, there are some interesting uh, things. There are, are uh, some interesting things that are interesting for for very different reasons. Uh, <laughs> I I do. There, there's a sidebar where you talk about the blood oath and uh, basically the pros and cons of uh, of that. Uh, and it's uh, yeah, it, it it does have some uh, nice kind of things. Uh, to, to think about it, you, you perhaps you don't want to bloodbond people too lightly, um, because that's that's going to have consequences. So that that was a nice little touch, um, and then then you also have a bunch of uh, 
uh, examples of uh, of of how you can like like gaming examples on on how um, how how you can use your uh, your background so your your um, the resources at hand to uh, perhaps find guards or perhaps find a place to to dwell in. Uh, which is uh, yeah a, a, again it's it's a nice touch um, uh, so so yeah it's uh, you shouldn't feel bad about this chapter <laughs> uh, there there are some things that uh, are, uh, are are very not good uh, but but overall the, the, there are some nice touches in it so so yeah don't feel too bad about it yeah. Uh, did you catch the Easter egg that I snuck into the example for werewolves on how to expand your um, uh, your backgrounds? No, I might have missed that. Is is that the last one of the set yeah. of the Thunder Favor or? Yeah, exactly. There's a a, a young pack of um, of shadow lords doing various um, undercover missions in the city, and and I've named them the Runners in Shadows. Um, so if, if you oh know, yeah yeah the shadow run yeah okay yeah <laughs> it, it, it's 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 a bit of an obscure um, Easter egg but I I just I couldn't help myself yeah yeah okay I haven't really played shadow run but but yeah now now that I I re- actually is looking for it then, then yeah, yeah that's uh, you should feel ashamed of yourself <laughs> <laughs> I do a uh, chapter four shadow domains gives us four uh, sample domains one for each type of supernatural being. Uh, I did the first domain, uh, the domain of Strood, so I'm going to turn that one over to you once again. Yes, Strood is is actually a real place. Uh, yeah, England I has some it. really weird place names, um, but again, it's um, yeah. O- overall, it's it's not really uh, that bad. There are. Um, I, it might just be that 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 Strood is such a small and insignificant place that that I haven't really been able to <laughs> find anything about it. Uh, there there is one thing though, and and again I I would I'm I'm really interested in in hearing where you got it from uh, because you um, a, a, again the the the, um, uh, the example is is in the form of of in this case a coterie and it's their domain uh, being explained. Uh, and you get a small rundown of, of uh, or a short rundown of, of the, the characters of the coterie and, and how they uh, have, what uh, background dots basically they, that they have brought to their uh, common domain and what they have pooled uh, and what is available for others. So so from that point of view, it's I, I really like it. It really shows um, like in a practical manner like what? Okay, we I've put three dots of resources, and you've put one, and and uh, our two friends have also put two dots each. What does this actually mean? Is it just a bunch of silver coin, or in like in this case, some of it is trade, some of it is? Um, I think it comes from a the income of a uh, of an inn, for example, yeah. and uh, so in that way, I, I really like it. Um, however, there there is. Um, let me just see if uh, yeah uh, is it the, the Baron of Rochester or uh, it's it's one of the characters one of the K Knights characters who's uh, he he's mentioned that he's I can't remember if he's a, a Norman who dislikes Saxons or a Saxon who dislikes Normans 
but that that whole at least from what i can tell the whole normans and saxons disliking each other is is very much an an 19th century kind of like a romantic thing yeah. with again with uh, Ivanhoe and and Robin Hood and stuff like that. So. And it is specifically Ivanhoe because I am a huge Ivanhoe fan. Oh, okay. So yeah. I'm fairly certain that that informed my way of, of mm. describing things here. Yeah, b- because th- there was a difference between like the Norman Norman conquerors um, and and the quote unquote ordinary people, um, but it wasn't that big, and and people still like. Uh, again, William Marshall, he considered himself an Englishman uh, and, and not like a Norman, even though he, he was from Norman descent. Uh, yeah, and, by and, 1230, and, the whole divide was pretty much gone. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and so it's very much an Ivanhoe thing. Um, and, and of course, this, especially later on during the Hundred Years' War, then people really became Englishmen because then... Then they had to fight off the evil Frenchmen. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. so yeah, okay. So that that explains why uh, why you wouldn't like, uh, or why you included that because uh, yeah. I, again, Ivanhoe. Um, there, there yeah. was. I'm, I'm just going to mention this because it might be an interesting thing for if our listener wants it. We could talk about like medieval movies and remakes because uh, there was apparently a miniseries. Uh, of Ivanhoe done in 1997 which included amongst other people Christopher Lee as some kind of vicious priest and uh, let me just get his name straight Uh, uh, the guy who played the British officer that sacrifices his life uh, in uh, Last of the Mohicans he plays Ivanhoe and there are a bunch of other like I remember his face one of the guys ah. from Alien 3 shows up. Uh, <laughs> and and I've seen the trailer on YouTube and it looks fantastically horrible. So we might do uh, an, uh, a side quest on like crappy remakes of, of uh, old movies and stuff if you want to listen to it. Uh, yeah. I, I'd be down for that. But uh, I, again, I just stumbled into this because I also looked up the whole Ivanhoe Norman Saxon thingy. Yeah. Uh, but but yeah, I I do uh, overall. I, I yeah, I, I don't really have that much to comment on. Uh, I do like the fact that the the characters are actually quite fleshed out. Uh, I, I recognized at least one of the portraits. Um, oh yes, exactly. The uh, the portrait. So which one did you recognize? Uh, let me just get Catherine Maidstone. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. The thing was when when I was describing these characters, in two cases I was basically describing people that I know, and I just love the fact that you know the the uh, artist, the way he drew them, especially Sean Mark, uh, Sean Mark de Martinique uh, of, of Ventrue, um, when when people who know the person who's being described sees that picture. In some cases, they immediately recognize it, and in other cases, when I just mentioned it's supposed to be him, they go, "Oh, of course, yeah, it's my uh, my brother-in-law, Martin." Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I, I I recognized the other uh, picture first because uh, she she showed me it uh, when I I visited her. 
Yeah, um, she. I, I told it's a friend of, of ours, and I told her about it, and she actually. She, I I think she actually contacted the artist and bought the original drawing. Oh, that's yeah, that's that's cool. Um, yeah. Uh, one one thing that I I would comment on. I let me just get the the one. There's. Uh, yeah, I think it's the description of what's his name, Manfred Bauer, who's yeah. kind of the, like the muscle of the. Uh, I think it's it's described that he's walking around wearing furs or something like that. No, and he, he's often dressed in leather armor. <coughs> yeah, leather. Yeah, that was it. And and again, like what? No, but why? No. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so, uh, but but yeah, it's um, I. And I'm not just saying it because Jacob is one of my friends, but I actually think it's it's a fairly interesting uh, I, I kind of example of of how these uh, different uh, or or how a domain could work. Uh, so yeah, I, that's uh, that's all I have to say for it now. Unless you want to add something or ask something. Well, I I have a a few points. One of them being that in the description of the village, you have the inn, which is on something called uh, the Watling Street, which is an old Roman road. Uh, I I don't know if there was uh, ever an inn in Strood. Uh, I did. I've been to Strood. That was why I ah. you chose that. Um, and it is a, uh, an area very close to Rochester, and it's now part of, I think, like a, a greater Maidstone metropolitan area or something like that. But I've been mm. to Strood, I chose it, then there's no, I have no evidence for there being uh, an inn there, but I thought when you're on what is the probably the most important, important road going to London from this area, then it would make sense to have inns along the road. We've talked about about before how road roadside taverns weren't much of a thing because you never knew if you got enough customers but on a street on the Watling street you would yeah. get enough customers so but um it says that i've written that across from that uh, there is a building that the village leaders use for a, a meeting and in a village or even a town you would never have a building just dedicated to meetings. Cities yeah, yeah, that's that. that's a good point because buildings are expensive and you would yeah. use it for other stuff as well. <laughs> if if I'm going to try to make a saving throw, it might be a communal barn that the village uses uh, or a communal granary, and then it's also used as a meeting place. And then there's a character who's described as the village wheelwright, who's also the village carpenter and cooper. Nope, you wouldn't have all three traits at the same time in one person you could be a wheelwright who also did some carpentry when you were in a village that wasn't controlled by a guild but you wouldn't have someone who'd be able to do both wheelwriting cooperage and high level carpentry so that's also a, a, a bit of a, a mistake from uh, for, for me yeah uh, did do you want to comment uh, the artwork in this chapter or was it later on no, it was basically uh, one of the things I wanted to say was that that how amazing it was that um, the uh, artist managed to hit those two yeah. people so yeah. that they're actually recognizable. But in general, both here and later, I think these are some amazing uh, pictures. Not only are they, they, they look really good, but in a lot of cases, I think they also really work. If you look at someone like Jean-Marc the Ventrue, like the the tunic that he's uh, wearing with a subtle but still noticeable embroidery along yeah. uh, neckline color, of yeah. that one or Marcel the Toreador who's got this string of um, 
probably semi-precious stones in her hair, things like that. Mm. It it actually looks really well. So so there's some there's some very very nice pictures that just really f- work. You, later on, you have a guy in what is essentially a a early 16th century plate uh, breastplate, yeah. but it, it's it's a minor thing with with some of these. So uh, so yeah, I, um, I I really really like what it's done, especially because I'm a writer. I've written characters in for other books and sometimes the art like there was one character i created where it specifically draws attention to the fact that he has a huge mustache and that's i I didn't specify it that much but it was really a part of him to have a big mustache and then the character picture was clean shaven i was a bit (laughs) you know you you could have uh you could maybe have uh, have paid a little more attention so this is to me as a writer a perfect um, example of how an artist can really take what the writer's written and um, and put it into um, put it into a, a a picture. So I just liked it. Um, yeah. But in in order for this not to turn into an, an absurdly long episode, I think we should move. Yeah, right we, to... we we need to move on. Uh, I'm I'm just going to mention it as well when when we're talking about these these characters. Uh, yeah. I, I think this was at around the time when, when White Wolf used a lot of freelancers and a lot of freelancers used their friends as as kind of at least appearance-wise templates for the characters <laughs> because there there are a bunch of uh, of, of character portraits, uh, portraits in this chapter that isn't really wearing historical garb. Uh, mm. The thing is that I'm assuming that the uh, the basis for those pictures are probably people's like LARP outfits that they would use that that it's basically been a drawing of that, uh, especially Manfred because I think I recognize the the LARP dagger that he he's uh, wearing in his belt and I'm I'm not going to comment on that because like that's that's people and that's the things that they wear because they want to have fun. Uh, and I, I see no reason to, to like criticize stuff like that because the important thing is that that people are having fun yeah. uh, and and have a nice time at the LARP. So 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 yeah, it's some of it might not be very historical. You mentioned the the 16th century plate and and there are also some other like doublet, uh, doublets and things like that that are, that are kind of out of place. But again, I don't care. It's it's someone who likes that outfit, so let them enjoy it. Yeah, uh, so we go on to the mages, and we have Ulf's Hall, which is in Norway. Ooh, um, but mm. otherwise, you know, we're we're dealing with the Valdermen, the the um, Viking mages. One thing I love here is that they're uh, one of the things that they've pulled is um, familiar, which is not normally a background you can pull, but yeah. here they give an example of how you could do it, which is awesome. I also love just the description of the hall where you have this treasure where people are allowed to take what is needed from the treasure but it see and and then others come and put stuff back but it seems like it also magically kind of replenishes itself a little bit and but they're not sure of it and it's just there's some really evocative cool descriptions here and and the self-refilling treasure it does harken back a little bit to Odin's ring yes, yes. Uh, which which drips copies of itself so i mean i don't have much to say when it comes to historical stuff because it's specifically set 
on an island off a remote fishing village in the middle of nowhere with very little connection to Norway as it was. It does mention quite correctly that Norway is not just Christian, but very Christian at this yeah. time. Like it was probably the most Christian of the Scandinavian kingdoms at this time. Um, but but other than that, it harkens back to an earlier time, and I think it does it really well. Yeah, and and to be fair though, like a, a small island in next to a remote fishing village that could basically be anywhere in Norway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But but yeah, so, I I also really like the like you mentioned, it's it's very evocative, and it it again it's it's more about real mythology or real world mythology ra- rather than than history. Uh, so in that it makes sense, and and also just the the fact that people are allowed to take what they need uh, goes back to the tradition of hospitality and and like yeah. being a good and generous host. Uh, so so those are some nice touches. Um, and just mentioning it for those who haven't read the book, the the pooled familiar is uh, is it a flock of crows or ravens? Ravens. I, it, ravens. Yeah, of course. Uh, which is just really really cool and appropriate as well. So that would be an unkindness of ravens, right? Not a flock. Yeah, I, I, yeah. A, a bunch I love, of them. <laughs> yeah, I love English collective nouns. They're yes, just fun. Yes. Uh, the next one is the Protectorate of Compostela or uh, Santiago de Compostela. Uh, incidentally, Santiago means Saint Iago, which in English in, is Saint James, which in Danish is Saint Jacob. Hey, hey! Because it was very very popular a very very popular place for scandinavian pilgrims to go yep. so they translated yago to jacob which is the closest equivalent in uh, in a, a language they they kind of knew so it's 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 fun i really love the description here of it, of the shrine of saint james and this pilgrimage destination which was the second most popular pilgrimage destination in europe after rome I love the description of it as a complete tourist trap yeah. because it's true. It's It was a medieval tourist trap. Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, they, they call it, uh, or they mentioned that uh, the, the countless, there was on the road to Compostela stories. Uh, yeah. And, and you have other similar uh, things like this when, when you have like a, a very famous uh, pilgrimage site and, and that would cause like literature or stories and stuff like that. Most famous is is probably the Canterbury Tales, where a bunch of yeah. pilgrims are going to Canterbury. So, so yeah, it, it also does a, a good way of describing how uh, two cells of inquisitors could be set up and everything. And like I said, it, it is very historically correct with how it describes Santiago. And this is a place where you can have a street of taverns because so many people were coming there. And this is a place where you can have the more metropolitan, cosmopolitan feel, because people were coming from all over. You'd hear dozens of languages, see dozens of coins, that sort of stuff. It is a place that is as close to, let's say, the Hollywood interpretation of the Middle Ages as you're probably going to get. Yeah, in in some ways, because it's like you, you have a lot of people going through and... Uh, I'm uh, I, I'm I'm actually kind of uh, intrigued by the way because the the other um, like Strud for example uh, it was it it's a small town the the Ulf's Hall it's just a hall uh, and but but um, Santiago de Compostela is a huge place so it, in a way it makes sense that there are at least two cells of inquisitors. You probably have more. You could probably throw in 
uh, a coterie of vampires there as well if they could stand all the um, all, all the true faith uh, but Funny it, you it should mention that. Just wait until the companion book for this book, because stuff happens to these domains. Ah, okay. Which because that's that's the thing that I was going to mention because they explicitly mention uh, in the uh, or did I completely in, misinterpret that? That it says that these examples aren't canon. Uh, yeah, exactly. It, it it says that these you shouldn't take this as being uh, how things are in the canon version of. Uh, the world of darkness these are just examples so you for example you might later read of a different vampire prince in rochester than the one i present in the strood chapter um but in there's a companion book to this called spoils of war where these domains turn up again Ah, okay, but they're not the same ones. Yeah, that was because I, w- I was just going to to comment on that. That in a way, it's 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 almost a shame uh, that they they wouldn't or that they wouldn't make um, Santiago de Compostela canon because it's it's such an a good and obvious place to to have a bunch of inquisitors. Um, mm. uh, actually, Catherine from my chapter, uh, the Young Toriador, she becomes canon because she actually turns up as an NPC in, I think it's the revised. Uh, no, sorry, the 20th anniversary edition Guide to the Camarilla or something Ooh. like that. It's one of it's one of the 20th anniversary books where she turns up as an elder coming out of torpor, which I thought was really fun when when I read that book that some another author had taken up one of my characters and, and reintroduced cool. her. Yeah. Um, we end with the Sept of the Bright Promise, which is a really interesting urban sept made up of waters of men and children of Gaia, uh, set in I. I don't know how to pronounce it. Is it Acre? Is it Acre? Whatever. The the, the capital of the Crusader states. Yes. I, I keep calling it Acre because it's spelled that way. Yeah. And it's it's an interesting uh, approach, especially because they say that a lot of the um, of the Guru have an Islamic approach. Uh, or more like an Islamic philosophy. They're not religiously ex- Islamic because they're werewolves and their religion, if they have one, is Gaia. But but philosophically, spiritually, they are also is, uh, Muslim, which is a really interesting take on it. And it, as it quite rightly points out, um, Acre might, is a city of 40,000 people, and that's not 40,000 Christians. That's not even 10,000 Christians. Yeah. So, in fact, the the one complaint I have about this one is that it doesn't go into more detail about uh, Acre, and I know there are there are constraints on how much space you could use, but it's just Acre is such an interesting city at this time. It is yeah. such a a, a, a a exciting city that is perfect. It's one of the perfect settings for just pretty much any. Uh, of the supernatural quote-unquote races yeah. because of all the stuff that's happening. Yeah, yeah, and I, I do like that they uh, they had one of these examples that, that weren't just somewhere in uh, in, in Christian Western Europe. Uh, yeah. so, so just the fact that they have that and that they they make it work, like like you mentioned, the, the kind of combination between the at least the philosophy of, uh, of uh, Islam and... And the philosophy of, of being a werewolf and being a, a huge badass uh, monster of destruction and and protecting Mother Earth uh, is is very uh, it's a cool combination and again we we mention it that in some ways uh, Islam 
uh, ha- has some as- aspects of being a, a religion tied to the moon, which makes sense if you if you have um, werewolves that that have some connection to it. Uh, but but yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's an interesting example again. Yeah. All right. It is time to judge this book both as a gaming book and as a book touching on history. Now, I'm not an unbiased reader, so <laughs> Peter, let's start with your takes on this as a gaming book aimed at the concept of shared uh, background, shared domain. How does it fare as a book dedicated to that? Uh, well, like. Uh, Overall, I I liked it. Uh, again, I, I think it's a very interesting idea to to uh, both kind of from a game mechanics point of view and and what I talked on for way too long about how how pooled uh, resources in in real life is was also kind of a thing. So mm. so I like I like that one. There there are some mechanical aspects uh, that we we didn't mention but some rules like you have to roll this and if you want to do this everyone in the coterie has to roll x amount of dice and i see why they use those kind of examples but you could just kind of make it up as as you go along and say that okay Mm. we together we have these resources what can we do with it but that's more of kind of what kind of uh, gameplay style you prefer rather than something that has to do with a book um, but the thing that I'm I'm kind of the edge on is that like this is a crossover book so if you're only interested in say mages or yeah. werewolf then then you basically buy just you you pay for a full book but there's only a quarter of, quarter of it that's actually of interest to you uh, so, so from from that point of view, uh, I'm I'm not sure that it's um, that that it's something that I would want if if I just wanted to play say werewolf. Uh, it it does. On the other hand, it does make sense to have uh, to gather all of it in the same book because there are so much overlap. And rather than just reprinting the same thing in four different books. It makes sense to to gather all of the uh, this, the stuff that's uh, coming to all of it and and putting it together. Um, so so yeah, all, all in all, if if nothing else, like uh, you could buy this together with your friends, so that the the person who likes to run werewolf can can have use of those chapters, <laughs> and uh, the mage uh, storyteller has has something to play with, and so on and so on. Um, so so yeah, that's that's my take on it from from like a uh, a gaming supplement point of view. Yeah, I don't really have much to add to that. You're pretty much echoing my thoughts that that on you you and you could end up paying for a lot of material you don't want. But I like your idea of people pooling their resources. Yeah. Um, <laughs> how appropriate! Yeah, I, I didn't actually. even think of that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to uh, to 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 buy the book so that everyone can. Um, get around to it. I mean, mm. looking at the price back when it was published, when when I was a younger person who didn't make as much money, then maybe this wouldn't have ended up on my list. But uh, now that I'm older, I have more money and less time to uh, to play. So I would <laughs> I would just buy it and read it and then hopefully one day be able to uh, incorporate it. So from a historical standpoint, I mean, we've we've gone into a lot of things. I think you were very nice to uh, to my chapter. I could point out a lot more mistakes that I did, but I would say that especially the first chapter, the King's Domain, 
I think had some awesome historical content to it. And my chapter didn't only have have <laughs> historical mishaps. I will uh, there 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 are some some good stuff in there. That there's one thing that I I want to point out because I describe a um, a box created by a Muslim inventor yes. Yes. which uh, has dials on it. The I think it's like. I think it ended up being like 12 dials all in all that had a staggering like 4 billion combinations. That one is 100% real. And the guy who, who made it and the book that's mentioned in there, 100% real. I have seen the box in a museum here in uh, in Copenhagen and it is so cool. Yes. It is so beautiful. Yeah. So I knew I had to include that in here. Yeah. Uh, but other than that, you know, I like much of the history in here and... I, I apologize for my chapter, the stuff that I <laughs> no, no, I'm I'm actually I was I was trying to to go through it with with a fine tooth comb just to see, but apparently I missed some stuff. So if if any of our listeners find something that I missed, because and and I want to make this clear, I, I didn't go light on Jacob again just because we're <laughs> we're friends. So if 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 there was something I missed, please point it out to to both of us because uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, this yeah. is. One of the things that we want this podcast to do is also to engender discussion because I love learning. And if somebody knows more about a certain area than me, then please do uh, post and uh, explain about it. I mean, there's a reason why I'm watching all those histor uh, historic YouTube videos that I do. There's a bunch of uh, most of the, the YouTube videos I watch that doesn't have to do with wrestling <laughs> are, are basically videos about, about history. So, uh, so... If if there's anything that you know more about and want to enlighten us about, please do. Yes, please do. We we've had some interactions with some of our listeners when they have sent us stuff with information, and and I loved it. It was really really cool. So, if if we're wrong, please tell us. Yeah. So the next book in the line is another road book. This time, Road of Heaven, and I'm. 99% sure that it features Anatole as the point of view character, which means that I'm going to hate it. <laughs> well, or at least I'm going to hate the point of view character because I don't like Anatole. Anyway, remember, if you want to support the channel, we have a Patreon. And if you have comments, suggestions or critique, or as we said, more information, you can pop by our Facebook page. Um, and with that, Peter, do you have any last comments before we sign off? Well, if if you want to annoy your friends uh, that don't play role-playing games, tell tell them about this pod and see what they think about it. And, and spread yeah, it around to people who might uh, actually do like it and, and do play role-playing <laughs> games as well. And so, it is goodbye from me, Jacob. And from me, Peter. Farewell, and see you next time. Bye! Bye.